would you consider an open source network operating system for your data center? Sonic, backed by sponsor Dell Technologies, is worth investigating. Automate effectively, monitor deep telemetry, and enjoy excellent support from Dell's global organization. Visit packetpushers.net slash dellsonic to find out more. Packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. Would you like your heavy networking skills to be even heavier? IT Pro TV is sponsoring today's episode, and they're offering a seven-day free trial and a 30% discount off of any of their online IT training plans. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. We talk about APIs so often you might feel like something's wrong with you if you keep logging into the CLI to get things done. And of course, there's reasons you're interacting with the CLI, and it's not just that you're resistant to change. Sometimes the CLI really is the best way to accomplish configuration tasks or to gather important information. Fair enough. But what if you want to automate those interactions with the CLI? Is there a way? Well, historically, you've used maybe TCL paired with Expect, or more on trend lately, NetMiko or Napalm, and now there's a new CLI scraper that has been born Scraply, as in Scrape CLI. See what they did there? And our guests are Carl Martinari and Dimitri Figel to talk to us about the joys of CLI scraping with Scraply. And uh, Carl, uh, welcome to the show, and, and welcome back. We've talked a little bit about Scraply on YouTube, and uh, and you guys have done some some other, like you and Dimitri have done a really long form recording on YouTube about uh, about Scraply and so on. But before we get to that, Carl, I want to ask you about Expect because there was this thing a long time ago that we used. It was Expect. Why don't we still use Expect scripts anymore, or or do we? I guess maybe they're they're still probably out there. Um... And of course, we kind of still use expect in, in some way, right? We still, when we're interacting with the CLI, um, we're just adding kind of smarts around like an older school style expect, right? Um, so now Miko, Scrapply, all of these kind of things are looking for prompts and basically trying to kind of understand what's going on in the CLI. So you don't have to just sit there and tell expect what to expect for every single command, you know, with every, you know, perfect prompt to match and all of that. So you know, the CLI is pr- probably not going away anytime soon or maybe ever because, you know, as a human, this uh, it's a really convenient and good way to get a lot of information. Um, so, you know, we have things like expect, NetMiko, Scrapply, um, all of this to do these kind of expect-like things. So maybe not traditional expect anymore, although I'm sure there's still some of that floating around. But hopefully no more TCL. I had, I had a CCIE lab flashback. <laughs> it wasn't good. <laughs> I haven't done much TCL for quite a while. I don't, it, it, whatever, it was fine. Every language you can kind of figure out how to get things done. But no, I can't say I miss TCL. Tickle, sorry. <laughs> what were we supposed to say? Tickle? Uh, anyway, yeah. All right, Carl. So uh, expect where, where the olden days of TCL and so on and uh, bad flashbacks. Well, let's move into what you guys are working on. Uh, what's Scraply? Yeah, so Scraply is a Python um, screen scraping client, uh, basically, as the name implies. Um, the tagline is fast, flexible, sync, and async. Python 3.6 screen scraping client specifically for networking devices, which is obviously a mouthful. Um, but the, the idea is this is a modern implementation uh, of a screen scraper. Uh, and, you know, my background's all obviously all networking stuff, so it really specifically focused for networking. But anything you can really tell that or SSH to um, or netconf over SSH, as we'll, we'll probably talk about a little bit later, is uh, what Scraply's designed to interact with. Okay, so screen scraping client, uh, specifically at network devices, but interestingly, wouldn't have to be limited to network devices. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I kind of started building this with a focus on SSH, and, and uh, at one point, Dimitri was like, well, you know, you've done all this work. Uh, you know, you could probably just easily add Telnet, too. And so I decided to probably drop the uh, SSH from everything and just kind of talk about screen scraping more generically. Um, so yeah, Telnet, you know, if you've got PDUs or something silly like that, or console server, things like that. Um, it's tested against Linux boxes, even though, you know, it's probably a better tool like Ansible or something like that for, for any kind of Linux stuff. Uh, but yeah, anything you get out with Telnet or SSH, uh, Scrapply can kind of play with. Okay, this this is this is interesting. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna dig into the the specifics of what we're getting back from Scrap when we do some interactive queries in, in in a bit. But I got some other questions I gotta ask you first. So first of all, you said Python 
3.6 plus. So does that mean we're, we're Python 3 only then for Scrapply, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Python 3.6 plus uh, was through 7 plus for a while there. And Dimitri talked me off of that uh, particular ledge a little bit as well. Um, but yeah, it's 3.6 so we can get F strings and kind of all of the, the, I guess I'd say modern Python goodness. And really hopefully there's no Python 2 floating around in network automation world since it's, you know, fairly young. <laughs> That, well, that's the question I was. I really wanted to ask is, should I even be asking the question about Python 3 versus 2 anymore? Is that done now? Uh, like Python 3 is just assumed? Or is there still a lot of old Python 2 out there where that's a, a thing you need to wonder about once in a while? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're, if you're supporting a big code base of, you know, whatever, uh, and you've been building it for years and years, of course, there's probably, you know, Python 2.7 stuff floating about. But I think in the context of network automation, you know, I think a lot of us are newer to the game with Python, I guess I'll say, and, and all of the libraries, you know, that I use kind of from a day-to-day -day basis uh, are all 3.6 plus at this point. So Nemico, Napalm, Nornier, um, all of that. <laughs> I'm sure Dimitri has some other uh, kind of context there as well, though. I, I, th I think Python 2 days are over. Um, there, was, there was officially a last release in April this year, and Time to move on, folks. <laughs> so I don't think I don't think we should ever keep asking question about Python two and just think about Python two anymore, unless you are someone like Dropbox who had one million line code base in Python or, or something. Yeah. 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 Okay. So so beyond Python three six plus, what what other requirements are there for me to be able to run Scrapply? So the the core of Scrapply. Uh, by itself has absolutely zero requirements. It's 100% standard library, uh, which is something I've worked pretty hard to kind of make sure that's the case. To use Scrapply kind of natively, there's there's nothing else required. Um, that said, there's some kind of additional plugins that you can have. You can use different transports that we'll talk a little bit about later, I'm guessing. Um, you could obviously have like text FSM parsing and stuff. Like I'm sure a lot of a lot of folks uh, listening are familiar with, or Genie parsers if you're kind of looking at more Cisco specific stuff. Um, so all of those are optional extras, but by itself, it, it has zero requirements. You mentioned NOSes being the primary thing, network operating systems that Scrapply is interacting with. Well, okay, which NOSes are supported? Because there's only like you know eight million of them out there. Yeah, there sure are 8 million. Um, Scrapply supports kind of as first-class citizens right now, the the core air quotes here, uh, Napalm platforms. So that's Cisco, iOS XE, iOS XR, NXOS, Arista EOS, and Juniper Junos. Um, that said, um, these are kind of for those, that first-class kind of citizen behavior, uh, but Scrapply is really flexible and, and I've got it working against like Cisco AirOS uh, for wireless controller. And I've seen some folks using it against Huawei devices. Um, so there's, it's, it's flexible and you can kind of tweak things enough to make it work with pretty much anything. Well, a little what, bit of work. What does it mean that these are first-class citizens and that these operating systems are, are supported? Does that mean as output comes back, it like understands, oh, it's formatted this way and so I can break up the output in a particular way or something? Um, more like they're, they're like actively tested. So kind of one of the reasons for picking those platforms, uh, there are virtual devices for all of those platforms available. So part of the testing process for Scrapply is to actually spin up a virtual device of all of these flavors and actually go out and do configurations, get commands from it. Um, Scrapply doesn't really care or know about the operating system beyond having to understand about privilege levels and what may or may not indicate a failed command. Um, otherwise, it's really just looking for that prompt and, and capturing what happened between the command you sent and the, the next prompt. So it, it can work for, you know, add brocade or, or whatever. Um, it can work with all of that. Uh, but first class, I, I just mean, like, really well tested, consistently tested as part of all of the test suites that I run. It, it doesn't mean that, ah, Scrapply knows that when you type show BGP route that it understands magically something special about the text output and, you know, times 100,000 commands that are supported <laughs> in the NOS. No, and I mean, that's where we, we have the, those kind of optional extras, that, that text FSM and Genie parsing that, uh, you know, if you've used Namico, you're familiar with this probably as well. Same kind of functionality there uh, where you can say, okay, well, you know, I know it's an iOS X 
SXE or XR or whatever device, and I have TextFSM templates installed, I can go ahead and, and ship the output I got from the device off to TextFSM, and, and it can have the, the smarts to parse. Scrapply is much more concerned about um, just the actual kind of SSH process rather than you know knowing about all of these devices. And in, in fact, like an ideal world and kind of the next major project is maybe even to some extent getting rid of this kind of concept of a driver or a network operating you know plugin um, and having a more kind of fluid uh, way to interact with these networking devices where we don't necessarily have to have a class for every single type of device. Although that may be a little bit of a pipe dream, but that's that's something that's on the, the radar. Well, how hard is it to actually add support? You said some people are already messing around with Brocade devices and Huawei devices and having some luck. So is this a really difficult thing? Uh, not usually. Um, basically, there's a Python dictionary uh, that in that contains some things uh, that indicate uh, information about each of the privilege levels. So again, I'll just kind of pick on iOS XE because it's kind of easy to talk about. Um, lots of people know it. Um, you would have a, an entry for every privilege level. So like exact privilege, exact and configuration. And Scrapply just needs to kind of understand what that prompt pattern looks like. So there's a regular expression that matches a pattern for each of those levels and then how to escalate and de-escalate uh, between those uh, privilege levels. And then Scrapply also has kind of a concept of a default desired privilege level. So say you log into an iOS XE device and you get the, you know, the, the caret prompt, the, the exact prompt, and your default desired priv is actually privilege exec, uh, you know, the hash prompt. Uh, Scrapply is going to automatically go ahead and acquire that next privilege level, assuming, you know, you've, you've given it a, uh, enable password and all of that. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that you need. And, and, and that basically gives Scrapply all the information it needs to know how to, like, to know what a configuration mode means and how to get there um, and what all these prompts mean. It's okay. It's taking the little bits of proprietariness that are found in each of these and being able to interpret those to get to that baseline of, I need to be able to get to config mode or I need to be able to get to enable mode or privilege mode. And once you're that far, uh, and again, that wouldn't be that wouldn't be all that much for each operating system. You're you're good. You're kind of in the door. Now you can send commands, get output back, and uh, and you're off and running. You don't even have to do that if you don't want to. Um, for example, you could just send something to the channel and receive something back. In case you are not in the mood of trying to understand how to define these different privileges levels and how to do transitions between them. So that's another possibility if you want to add a, a new platform or work with yeah. another platform. Yeah, and the way that Scrapply is kind of built is it's this hierarchical, it's kind of a nesting dolls or, or whatever. So there's this base class that represents all of the, like the, the vaguest kind of level of stuff. And then we build on top of that um, so that, on top of that base scrape class, there's a generic driver class. And for example, that generic driver is really just generic SSH. It doesn't know or care about networking devices, right? So it has no concept of privilege levels. So you could, if you only ever cared about like logging into something and running a show command, you could perhaps just use generic driver for literally everything and set a really, really broad uh, regex pattern to match for that base prompt. Um, and then if you need to care about you know, configuration things, there's the, the network driver that kind of sits on top of that. And that's where we start talking about, okay, well, we have this concept of a configuration mode, you know, above and beyond just sending and receiving stuff on an SSH channel. And then as it stands right now, the, the core platforms, those first class citizens have an additional layer that basically inherits from that network driver and extends it and says, okay, well, you know, now I'm an XOS and I understand that these are my privilege levels. And if I see, you know, percent sign invalid command. Uh, I know that this was a, this input failed and, and stuff like that. Hmm. It's a little hard without a picture, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we get the idea. Um, you've mentioned again, these first class citizens. Now we've defined that it's not super hard to either just use a device generically or to write our, our, a little driver of our own, let's say, to interact with a device, some little bit of regex and some knowledge of the device and, and, and we can get there. So does that mean like if I write you know, I've got some D-Link stuff that happens to be running in my lab. If I wrote uh, a driver that helped me use uh, Scrapply to interact with it, could I contribute that to the community in some way? Yeah, so that's definitely the goal. 
um, this kind of community concept doesn't really exist right now, but is, is on my roadmap for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm currently working out. I spent a little time last weekend um, trying to figure out how I want to do this. Uh, one of the things I, I really want is to not have a bajillion driver types. I don't want to have to maintain, um, even if it's you know kind of punted off to the community driver, uh, I don't want to have 50 different brocade drivers or 50 different Cisco drivers or 50 different, you know, whatever. Well, because then you have to test them all. Yeah. I mean, like ideally I would have to test them all. And and that's part of the reason core is core because I know I can get those virtual machines. I know I can run them in, you know, Internet lab or GNS3 or whatever. Um, so I know I can have, even if I don't have those physical devices, I can have really reliable testing. Um, so yeah, testing would be a big thing. And then just even, you know, contributors for stuff like this kind of come and go, um, which I understand absolutely. Uh, but I want to try to keep Scrapply as, you know, kind of tight as possible, well-documented, up to speed, you know, up to date, all that kind of stuff. So trying to figure out the way to do this that is is, is nice for the community that, you know, if you want to contribute to and, and use Scrapply, that like there is not a barrier of entry to that, um, but while also retaining kind of the quality and stuff. So I have no good answer for how to do this yet, but I've, I've got some thoughts that I'm kind of working on. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, all right, we've been talking about the command line. Uh, Scrapply is about uh, scraping the CLI, dealing with uh, interacting with that CLI. But so many devices have APIs now. So what's the relationship between Scrapply and any API that the network device might also have? Should I just use Scrapply and interact with a CLI? Uh, would I have other times where I, that wouldn't be the right tool and I would interact with the API? Do you have any recommendations and thoughts? Sure. I, I, th I think if the device supports API, whatever it might be, I would personally prefer API. But then again, um, there are different kinds of API. There are some, some REST API, which are very common on like firewalls and load balancers, but there, there is also standard APIs like RESTConf and NetConf. Right, and something like NetCon, which becomes my, uh, much more widespread than it was a couple of years ago now, we can use Scrapply to interact with NetConf as well. So we can actually work with that API using Scrapply. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, in general, you know, if you've got a good API, use that. <clears throat> Excuse me, don't, uh, you know, Scrapply's good um, because CLI is always there. And maybe your development time to just go capture some output from devices is, is really low uh, as opposed to learning, you know, finding the right Yang model and doing stuff like that. Mm. Um, but obviously there's huge benefits to having like a real API, RESTConf, NetConf, HTTP-based API, whatever. Well, it feels to me like scraping the CLI and uh, using an API are different things. That is, I go to the CLI, I'm getting, it's like, it's like a compromise, right? I'm asking a script to pull data off the screen and feed it back to me in some structured way so that I can use it programmatically. But it's, it's not, in my mind, that's not the ideal way to go. You use that because you don't have another choice. If I use an API... Um, you know, let's say NetConf, then assuming the calls are there and depending on what models are supported and so on, I should be able to use, uh, make a call against the API and get structured data back that way. And in, in theory, it's documented pretty well, so I kind of know what I'm doing and that would be the preferable way to go. But uh, Carl, you and I were talking offline and you actually told me that based on your work, uh, you've discovered that NetConf has a lot more to do with CLI scraping than I might think. And maybe I'm, you know, like making them very different in my mind when in fact they're more related, NetConf and, and the CLI, than I think they are. So would you, would you talk about that? Yeah, this is, uh, this is controversial, I guess. Um, I, so a CLI is encoding. It's just encoding for humans, right? And, and NetConf is a well-documented encoding for robots. That's, that's the big difference, right? Uh, so in, in network land, um, NetConf runs over an SSH subsystem. Uh, so you, know, you connect on maybe a different port, maybe port 830, the default kind of NetConf port, um, and you enable this SSH subsystem called NetConf. And then what happens is you get bytes over that channel, right? Just the same way you get when you're yeah, SSHing to a device or telling that here whatever. Um, so at the end of the day, everything is just bytes on a channel. And uh, the encoding for the CLI is meant for, you know, humans for meat bags, right? So we can look at things and, and parse information quickly. Um, 
it kind of sucks for computers because there's not well-defined data structures and we don't have like a, a well-defined uh, end tag. So in NetConf, we define uh, all of this and it's, it's very explicit and it's a standard. So everybody agrees upon it. Um, but really what Scrapply NetConf does is fires up that subsystem instead of, you know, air quotes, regular SSH and reads from the channel just the same way it does for regular SSH. The difference being that we're looking for the predefined kind of encoding stuff and we're sending, you know, very explicitly defined messages. So I was being a bit of a kind of contrarian, I guess. Um, but there's definitely some overlap, right? And so that's why I was able to kind of make Scrapply uh, work in the context of networking or netconf um, relatively easy. It was <laughs> maybe a big, maybe not relatively easy is a bad, bad word. Um, but I was able to, without modifying really the core of Scrapply, was able to build this kind of netconf plugin on top of it because at the end of the day, it's bytes on a channel. Um, and it's just really learning about that encoding. Well, the bytes that are coming back from an API are usually in the form of, say, XML or JSON, right? In other words, it's structured in a way that my code knows what to do with it. Let's say it's, it's, it's a JSON blob. Uh, we could argue about what a JSON blob actually means, but let's just say you know, some <laughs> chunk of JSON data that comes back. I can map that into a dictionary. Now it's got it's it's a thing that I can reference and I can look at the different elements and I can pull them out very easily within my program. Um, but and but I'm but NetConf is doing that for me more or less. The API is doing that for me, giving me that structured uh, output. Whereas with Scrapply, now I haven't spent much time with Scrapply, but I'm assuming what I'm getting back is somewhat structured and parsed in a way, not just like here's what the screen gave you, or, or I don't know, maybe it is, but. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, so you're absolutely right. With NetConf, we get XML and we have like an end tag. So we know what the XML blob is and, and that XML is, you know, whatever the Yang model I makes it or tells it it should be. With Scrapply regular um, core, whatever we want to call it. Um, it. Yeah, absolutely. We're just getting what the, the API sends. Now you could, you know, send pipe display XML or pipe to JSON or, you know, whatever option. And then maybe you get a more structured thing back um, from, from the device. But, uh, but the actual result that Scrapply gets back is what you see on the screen as a, as a human. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, we put it into a response object. So in Scrapply, there's always a, you never get back just a string of text. You always get back an object. And that object or list of objects, in, in the case of a multi-result, if you're if you're sending multiple commands, um, has attributes, and one of those attributes is dot result, and that's of course just the the text from from the the channel. Uh, but there's also methods for genie parse or text FSM parse. Uh, so if if parsers are available and if it's possible to parse that, then we can run these methods and, and get back that structured data. Yeah, there's still going to be more work for me to do as the as the programmer as the coder to parse that output that's coming back to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. I, okay. I think I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the distinction and I'm also seeing the parallel you're drawing, Carl, why you're making that argument that it's, eh, it's just bytes. I'm getting bytes back. <laughs> so I, I, I think you're stretching it, Carl, a little bit, I'll be honest with you, but, but I get it. I understand how you're making that comparison. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a stretch. It's definitely a bit contrarian, but I mean, at the end of the day, we really are looking just for delimiters, just the same way we look for a prompt. And of course, the, but the encoding and, and the value of, that the Yang model gives where we actually know what we're going to get, obviously, that's the huge differentiation. Uh, both of these have a very different user experience, but for a maintainer of a library that implements it, they are very similar. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. I guess one last thing to kind of put a, put a bow on, on that is also from that perspective, like Dimitri just said, uh, from a user perspective, you may just want to get, you know, show version from a billion devices and the time to de development from just screen scraping and text FSM is maybe, you know, very short as opposed to kind of figuring out the Yang model you want and all of that kind of stuff. So right tool for the right job. I mean, an API is, you know, arguably better in most respects, but, you know, there's always trade-offs, I guess. That is a really good point. I'm glad you said that because if all you want to do is show version, get the output back, you don't need to... What is the exact leaf on the tree that is going to give me that chunk of data, which is, which potentially is going to vary uh, by device depending on manufacturer interpretation and so on? So yeah, I assuming your network vendor has a good CLI, then it has reliable encoding. It's just not encoding for machines, so we can easily get you know show version, show run, show text, show whatever.
Let's pause today's episode to talk about open source network operating systems. We're at a point where the hyperscalers most of these NASAs were aimed at, they've deployed them at scale, they've knocked off most of the rough edges, and have made them ready for use by a broader number of organizations. The kicker for the average enterprise? Yeah, it's usually support, because nobody wants to deploy a NAS of any sort, even an open source one that you can just have without support, and that is where sponsored Dell Technologies comes in. Dell has been working with the open source Sonic NOS since the early days. They've contributed a lot of the code, they know the product well, and if you become a customer of Enterprise Sonic Distribution by Dell Technologies, they will use that deep institutional knowledge to support your Dell Sonic deployment. All right, fair enough, we got the basics out of the way. You can invest in open source Sonic from Dell, and Dell's going to back it and support your company. But why would you go this direction? And the answer is Sonic itself. So three reasons here. One, Sonic is open source, and there's a goodly ecosystem that is built around it. There's a lot of action going on around Sonic. Two, there are lots of Switch hardware options from Dell that will run Sonic, including the Dell EMC PowerSwitch Z and S series. You're going to be able to build the data center fabric that you need. Three, the modern Sonic NOS architecture. Sonic is container-based. There is a data center-ready layer two and layer three networking feature set. It's designed for centralized management via REST and GNMI interfaces, although you also get a CLI. And there's Yang support, including open config models. But again, don't forget the other big part of this. This is Dell. You're getting a global organization with depots all over the world and folks on staff that have actually contributed to Sonic code. In other words, Dell is de-risking open source for your enterprise data center. So if you want to find out more, listen to Heavy Networking episode 521, where we get into the details of the features, the upgrade process, L2, L3 capabilities, and more of Sonic. You can also visit packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. That's packetpushers.net slash dellsonic. And that's just a redirect. That's going to take you right to Dell's Sonic landing page. If you do chat with the folks at Dell Technologies about Sonic, please let them know that you heard about it on Packet Pushers, and we thank Dell Technologies for being a sponsor. And now back to today's episode. Well, everything we've talked about so far is more or less common with NetMeco, Carl. So why Scrapply if I'm already a NetMeco user? Yeah, so the the most obvious, <laughs> the biggest, uh, most obvious kind of difference is that Scrapply has uh, async I/O support. So this matters for you a lot if you care and matters not at all if you don't. Um, but, you know, I know Dimitri's been doing a lot of stuff with AsyncIO, so uh, maybe he can talk about kind of why that, that's useful or matters, I guess. Of course. Um, yeah, AsyncIO became very popular in recent years in Python ecosystem and is becoming more, more and more popular. Um, it provides a way to uh, interact with different to do a lot of input output or IO uh, in a single thread very efficiently. And when you're talking about networking, that's what we're actually doing when we are uh, talking to a network devices, right? Majority of the time is spent not on the processing of the data, but on the waiting on the response from network device or network devices. So something like AsyncIO has a way to optimize this kind of use cases in a single thread Python program. Um, and it kind of changes the way you program a little bit. And unfortunately, a lot of things are incompatible between like synchronous ecosystem and asynchronous, especially for libraries that deal with external APIs and external systems like databases. So like you have to change your library if you want to do that. But in the end of the day, it, it's uh, very efficient. And it has, uh, for example, if you want to do something, some action on different devices at the same time, uh, in Synchronous world, most likely we'll be using something like threads. Um, and when we are talking about hundreds and thousands of threads, the overhead of managing threads is quite high. And this AsyncIO is so much, as the footprint of that is so much smaller. But then there is also another piece is that the way you program, you explicitly mark the places in your program where you go to external systems and you wait for something. And it reduces some possibility of bugs. But um, that is something that uh, 
usually it's more um, uh, more uh, vivid when you experience that. So let me read this back to you here. So what I'm hearing, we're, we're using async IO. Async IO means I'm not coupling the Python process with uh, having to wait for a response. That is, I can send the command, I can do other things while waiting for the network device to conjure up its response and kick it back to me. So I'm gaining efficiencies there, and I'm able to do that single-threaded. I don't have to get into the complexities of multi-threaded programming here. Uh, and so this translates to performance gains. If I'm interacting with dozens, hundreds, thousands of devices potentially, I'm going to end up with a completed script and all my data back to me more quickly with Scrapply than I might with NetMiko. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's going to be quicker because async IO also has quite steep learning curve. So it's not like you can build your async IO production application within a week or something. Like it really takes, uh, you need to learn some things and do some trial and error to to make sure it works. And um, Performance gains will be noticeable, but also not. Uh, we, we will probably not be talking about like five or ten times faster um, than threaded programming. Um, so there are still things you need to care about, uh, regardless if you go with threaded way of doing things or with a single way. So like it's not it's not that simple. That makes sense. Okay. I, well, hey, man, it's my job it's to a, make it simple. <laughs> it's, a, it's a messy topic. I, I think the, the big thing for me is like, if you need async IO, you need it. Or if you, you know, get to a, a really specific use case or in web kind of world, there's a lot of async IO stuff going on because you don't have to wait uh, for block, you know, these database calls or whatever the blocking operations are. Um, so async IO support is, you know, a, a, a really obvious difference in the, the, the API for async versus or add and sync and scrapply is identical. So if you you could do like quicker development on the, the synchronous API um, because you know you don't have to learn uh, anything new really. And then if you need to m migrate to async IO for whatever reason, um, then you have that flexibility. Uh, obviously, you have to change your code to make it async supported, <laughs> of course. But the the API from a scrapply perspective is exactly the same. Mm, okay. All right, so what are the other differentiators, Carl? Um, if you're using the uh, kind of the, the primary transport plugin uh, for Scrapply, which is just called System, uh, this is basically using user uh, uh, bin SSH like on your shell. Um, you can, because we're using bin SSH, which is usually open SSH on, you know, like on a Mac OS or whatever, um, you're going to get full 100% out of the box with zero kind of effort open SSH config file support. Um, which could be really useful for uh, jump post stuff. Um, I care about that a lot for control persist, so I can, you know, open a SSH connection to some uh, Bastion host that has 2FA. I can enter in my token, and then that that uh, session will be persisted for however long my control persist is set up to uh, to do to to persist for. <laughs> Words are hard, um, so that could be really interesting. Um, if you don't want to use Paramico for whatever reason then uh, Scrapply by default doesn't use Paramico. Uh, you can use Paramico with Scrapply if you want. Um, there's also SSH2 Python uh, plugin for transport, which we've not talked about, but is really, really fast because it's a thin wrapper around a C library libssh2. Um, if you care about typing, I've spent like a lot of time to make sure that Scrapply is, is well-documented and well-typed. Um, so this is something uh, that you, you might care about. Uh, and then, of course, the last thing we've kind of talked about a little bit is uh, NetConf. And uh, the kind of the idea here is you can have a consistent look and feel whether you're doing Telnet, SSH, or NetConf, and whether you're doing all of those things synchronous or asynchronously. Uh, so instead of having, you know, NetMiko and NC Client or Napalm and NC Client or whatever, uh, you can use Scrapply, which has the, you know, the same kind of... Uh, fields, docs, all of that across kind of that whole suite. Um, and you can do it, you know, sync or async, whatever you want. And as far as I know, there's not another async, uh, async IO netconf client uh, in Python at the moment. So that's kind of a cool, <laughs> planted my flag with that one, I guess. <laughs> okay. 
You said uh, typing, if you care about typing and well-typed, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Explain that to me. Yeah. Um, so Python is duct-typed or dynamically typed, uh, which means we don't have strict typing. Uh, we don't have to declare. Uh, when we create a variable, we don't have to say, this variable is an integer. It can never be anything right. else. But I, uh, I missed that thing. from all the courses I took in <laughs> computer science where you had to do that. That was like the, the comfortable thing. You did at the beginning, and it was the easy work. I'm going to define this, and it's right. a string, and this is an integer. And yeah, at Python, it's like, whatever, man, let's just go. Yeah, which is good and bad, right? I mean, you know, I'm not here to uh, debate the, 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 the whether duct typing is the right way to go or not. Um, but Python has added uh, via MyPy, and, and I think there's some other kind of static type checkers, um, this typing support. Um, and this doesn't matter for runtime. Python is still duct typed, you know, like when you actually run. Um, but this is another layer of... Um, type checking or another layer of like basically linting that can help make sure that you don't uh, do silly things like try to do a dictionary update on a variable that's actually a list or something like that. Uh, so that's cool from like a, just kind of preventing any errors from cropping up. And it's definitely kind of caught some things that I probably wouldn't have caught. Uh, but also this is useful for giving IDEs like PyCharm or VS Code or whatever um, some more information. Uh, so like when you're doing your, you know, it's doing its autocomplete IntelliSense stuff, it'll say, you know, these are the, the arguments based on doc strings and stuff like that. And the typing can kind of help tell the IDE like, okay, well, you're actually supposed to pass a string here or a list of strings or, or whatever. So it's nice from a development perspective. Okay. Well, this reminds me of something I ran into recently because I, I don't spend a lot of time in Python. So I keep picking up things that are, that are, may not be new if you're like a dedicated Python coder, that's what you do, but... But if you're a more casual user like me, you're like, oh. And, and one of those was um, like you can put, I forget the exact syntax, but it's in parentheses or braces or something next to the string or next to the variable, what it is, and kind of give a hint as to to the yep. code and to the IDs what, what it is. Are we talking about that or something a little different? Yep, exactly. Okay. Yep. So if you look through you know, the Scrapply code base, there'll be... Um, all of the arguments to, that you can provide to functions will be type hinted. Variables within there will be type hinted. So uh, it's a little bit more overhead on the kind of the front end, but I, I think it's well worth it. And if you're a, a person who's very, you know, kind of a control freak, you know, you really like everything lined <laughs> up carefully. It's just it's kind of appeal to us too. Yeah. So I feel so seen. <laughs> exactly. Or called out. I'm not sure which. Another practical question about using Scraply. Um, you know how when you copy and then you want to paste a bunch of data into the CLI, like I, every, we've all made this mistake where it's like, okay, I got all this big code block with a bunch of things in it, lines and lines and lines, and then you go to paste, and then the uh, halfway through the paste, the CLI just like chokes on all this input that you're sending to it, and everybody's sad. Do, do I have to worry about that with Scraply? Does it handle that for me? Yeah, absolutely. So no, no, you don't have to worry about that. Absolutely handle that. Um, Scraply, the way that kind of Scraply does the actual writing to the CLI or to the channel, the SSH channel, is that we will basically paint the command that you want to write into the channel. And then before we ever send that return character, we're going to make sure that that full input has been seen or, or you know, kind of registered on the, on the channel. Um, so this is, this does actually slow Scraply down in some places. Um, but I, I really think it's a useful thing to ensure that it's always reliably, you know, always consistent. Uh, and because we never, you know, hit enter until we're ready to, and we never start writing the next command until we, you know, read the prompt. Um, this whole kind of like, you know, paste buffer shenanigans is is totally a non-issue. To be fair, totally a non-issue in like CRT or any of these other uh, good terminal editors or terminal uh, emulators as well. But not a problem in Scrapply. But, but you knew exactly the problem I was talking about as soon as I brought it up. We've all been there. Oh, I've never done it. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another question here. Control plane CPU. So uh, another another thing that none of us have ever done except that we've all done it is like, oh, <laughs> I want to do an SNMP walk and uh, you know do this part of the MIB tree and then... Why did the core switch just dump all of its routing adjacencies? What's going on? The CPU's at 100%. And then everything comes back. And you're like, your face goes red. You s slide down into your chair. Um, I, I don't know what happened. Let's investigate it. I'll get a case open with TAC. Da, 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 da. I'm going for a long lunch. See you later. I'm out. 
Okay, can if I do something dumb with Scraply, is that possible for me to actually hammer the control plane CPU? Uh, you could definitely do something dumb with Scraply if you want. Obviously, we don't have any knowledge or or care about what commands you send. Um, but no, I I would be. I don't think that you could probably smash a CPU that bad with Scraply. Um, I mean, it would be the same as if you were sitting on a you know terminal and, and typing really, really, really ridiculously fast. But I would sincerely hope in, you know, what year is it, 2020, uh, that that's probably not enough to, to squash a CPU on any kind of modern networking devices. But I guess it, I'm not going to say it can't happen because I don't well, know. <laughs> well, I guess maybe this is an architecture question because the theory is if I line up a bunch of stuff in a, in a script that I want Scraply to go either gather data or do some config work or whatever it is for me, uh, you know, it, it could do it a lot faster than I could type. And in theory, it could do it in like multiple channels. I'm going to log in here. I'm going to log in over here and so on. But it doesn't go like that, it sounds like. I'm dealing with a device on a control channel and then running through commands sequentially as opposed to I'm going to open 10 sessions up and, uh, yeah. and then I'm going to hammer all these different commands through one through each of these sessions in parallel. Yeah, so by default, you know, if you have a Scraply connection and you say, you know, send commands and a list of a bajillion commands, it'll just exactly like you said, sequentially, you know, smash through them. Um, obviously, you could open 10 different sessions and, and you could configure that, but Scraply doesn't know or care about any of that. So you could get wild if you want, I guess, is, is the, the moral of the story. Yeah, you can fail at scale. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it can enable you to do <laughs> dumb things fast if you're dumb yeah. and want to do them quickly. Just, just want to go fast. <laughs> no, well, I, you know, this isn't a criticism of Scraply or any automation tool at all, but it is one of those things that all of us that have been doing more work with automation, it's in the, it should be in the back of our minds as one of those things. It's like, hey, if you don't think about what you're doing, there's a possibility here that you have just programmatically and with the speed of a powerful computer enabled yourself to do something really dumb. If you're not careful with the tool, <laughs> please think about what you're doing, I guess is the point. Yep, definitely. I need that, I need that voice in the back of my head all the time. <laughs> not, just, not just for automation. Hey, are, are you sure, man? <laughs> As a okay, developer, I, you have a lot of power and with that comes great responsibility. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I, I want to go back to something we were talking about earlier, you two, and that is um, the response data. So we mentioned how we were like contrasting the kind of data I get back from Scraply versus the kind of data I might get back from an API or a NetConf or RESTConf, let's say. Structured versus unstructured data. So you mentioned some of this before. I just want to dive into it a, uh, again, maybe kind of review this. I send a command. Um, via Scraply, the CLI Scraply's talking to dumps stuff to the screen. Scraply grabs that and that data is given back to me. You said it comes back as an object, the different parts of it. So there's different things within that object that I can now query. Um, I can look at the response. I think Carl, you and I talked earlier, there's like basically a status code kind of thing I can look at to see that it was a, um, uh, a successful or a failed query, you know, these kind of things. I want to focus yep. on the specifically the human stuff that I'd be interested in if I was actually at the CLI, that stuff that gets dumped to the screen that I'm reading through and gathering data from. How does that data specifically come back to me? Is it structured in some way, like in a dictionary or a list that I can parse through and reference different elements of that response? Or is it sort of a, a string blob that now I've got the work to do to parse through it. I know you've mentioned Genie and TextFSM, but just dive into what I need to do within the Scraply context to handle that, the human stuff I care about that would have been dumped to the screen had I been using the CLI. Sure. So if you, so Scraply has this kind of concept um, in large part, thanks to, to Dimitri's uh, uh, guidance on this of kind of singular and plural commands or configs. Um, so if you send a singular command, as in send underscore command, that you'll get a single response object back. And that object, like you said, it's just a, it's a Python class uh, that's been instantiated. And the dot result attribute of that is the just the string text of whatever the channel would have said. Uh, there's also a dot raw response or result, whatever. Um, that's the actual bytes 
uh, Scrapley does like some like white space trimming and some stuff like that. Um, that wouldn't be trimmed in that raw result. So you probably nobody really needs to look at that, but it exists if you cared. Um, there's also start and end time, elapsed time attributes of all of this. Um, and then if you did want to parse that into, you know, the list or, or whatever, you have those text FSM parse and genie parse methods. Um, of course, those depend on you having the parser and, and the right platform and all that kind of stuff. Um, if you do parse with text FSM parse or genie parse, you will always, always, always get a structured uh, data type back. So you'll get an empty list or an empty dictionary if parsing fails. Um, and this is because we want to be really consistent in kind of all of the things. So you'll always get a response back. If you use that text FSM parse or genie parse method, you'll always get a structured thing back. Um, it might be empty, but you can very easily say, you know, if genie result, um, then do something because an empty list or dictionary is going to, um, basically be false in, in Python. Let's press pause on the audio podcast capture engine to talk online IT training. Online IT training from IT Pro TV, our heavy networking sponsor today. A recent MIT study found that IT jobs have grown at more than eight times the rate of other jobs over the past decade. Congratulations, IT professional. You are in the right career. So what do you say? Time to level up? IT Pro TV has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft to VMware and AWS, even ITIL training. Don't, don't tell Greg. More than 4,000 hours of on-demand training is available in the IT Pro TV library. There are engaging hosts that present the information to you in a talk show format, not just a tedious lecture. They're live every day, and the shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed. Category, certification, job role. You can find what you're looking for with no trouble. Stream the entire IT Pro TV library on demand worldwide via Chromecast, Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. Learn IT. Pass your certs. Get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for a seven-day free trial and 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout to try it free for seven days and save 30% off all plans. Audio podcast capture engine reengaged and on with today's episode. Okay, so 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 my result before I parse it is from as far as Scrapley is concerned, it is just a string blob of some kind or has Yep. Okay. Yep, totally. So then I hand it off, let's say, to one of these other parsers that I can optionally be using. And you know, let's say Genie Parse. Genie parse yep. is is that like a generic parser or is that specific to the network operating system world? Yeah, so specific. The this response object has another attribute, uh, genie platform or text FSM platform. So when you call the genie parse method of that response object, the that data will get basically get automatically for you um, punted over to the genie parser. So it'll know that it's iOS XE, NXOS, iOS XR, whatever, um, and then uh, it'll. We also have to pass the command that we sent to Genie because obviously it needs to know what command it's trying to parse. Um, and that channel input is also an attribute of that response object. So we, we basically already have all the right data. And then we just kind of punt it off to Genie and let Genie try to parse it. If it parses it, great. And if not, oh, well, we return. Um, you know, that's an outside of Scrapply problem. And we just return an empty list or dictionary. So now, with G if Genie was successful, I would now have a dictionary object. Let, let's say it was uh, uh, show uh, interfaces brief or show IP interfaces brief, something like that. And now I end up with a, a whole list of inter presumably interfaces that I could reference um, in, in yep. the standard way you reference things in a list or a dictionary in Python. Yep, totally. Okay, okay. So the question just becomes then, how successful is the parser? And that's going to depend a lot on what commands you sent and what the output was, just how lucky you are with what you get. <laughs> sometimes it's not going to work out so good. Um, yeah. Sometimes I'm going to guess it might be a little unexpected. And sometimes you're telling me it's going to fail outright and I'm going to, my genie parse result is going to be null. There's not going to be anything in it. And if I do a, a check on it as a Boolean, it's going to fail because uh, there's, there's nothing in the result set. 
Yeah. In my experience with Genie and TextFSM, they're both pretty good. You know, obviously there's so many platform variations and yada, yada that, you know, they're not perfect. Um, but yeah, they're, they're pretty good. Okay. So it sounds like most of the time then I'm going to end up with something and that, that is structured and it may take a little bit of tinkering to figure out exactly what that structure is. It might not be obvious or necessarily even documented because there's so many commands out there. It's not possible that uh, we'd have like like an API that's got uh, methods and then a documented response. Here's the XML or the JSON that you're getting back. We would. We, it's not like that. It's more generic. Right. Like, okay, hand this off to the parser. See what it gives you back. You can look and see what the result set is. So as you're in your development phase, you'll have to figure out. Uh, oh, okay, it did parse it, and here's what I got. So now I know going forward that to find this statistic that I'm looking for, I'm going to have to refer to it um, in here. And you, you, I'm pointing, you can't see me, but I'm pointing in the air <laughs> anyway. And then now, and now you can move ahead with your development because you want to yeah. act on that statistic in some way, or it becomes part of a report, whatever it might be. And you can find, you know, the text FSM, the NTC text FSM templates, um, you know, they're obviously all out on Git. So you can kind of see what's available there. And of course the Genie parsers, They've got a you know boatload of docs, so you can see what parsers are available as well. Um, so all that exists. Now you said NTC very quickly in passing. You mean network to code their GitHub? They've got some text FSM uh, stuff that you can download and work with. Yep, yep, exactly. Um, and you can just pip install that, or install uh, pip install Scrapply with the optional extra of text FSM, and it'll install that for you, um, and then just kind of reference them uh, automatically. And then uh, one more thing about like this response object thing. Um, if you're using Scrapply NetConf, so you, you know we at that point we are getting structured data back, obviously. Um, so the Scrapply NetConf response inherits from the base Scrapply response object, but adds some other attributes. Uh, so at that point, you will have the option to get the XML response. Um, you can see stuff like uh, what the the XML key. Uh, top level tags are and stuff like that. Um, or of course you can get the text of the XML if you want um, in that response object as well. So just depends where, you know, what you're, you're poking and, and where what's available. I don't know why XML just irritates the crap out of me, but it does. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, JSON just to me is, is more straightforward as far as the key value pairs uh, and XML is like nested, 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 nested. Here's the thing you want. It's it makes me a little crazy sometimes. Yeah, Aww. I definitely feel that feel. <laughs> okay, uh, Carl, as you were describing this and the response object and you know the different methods that are there, it reminded me a bit of Python's requests uh, library. You know, very very similar. Um, one of the things I can get from that library, that request library, which is for dealing with HTTP interaction, I can get a status code back. So I know if from the web server, if I got a 200, that was a valid or a 300 series or a 500 series or whatever. So I kind of know if the thing I tried to get was valid or not valid. Do I have uh, something like that in, uh, in Scrapply? I, I know the answer is yes, but maybe articulate what that is. Sure. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's as reliable as, you know, just a status code coming from the server, because obviously that's straight from the source. Um, but in uh, Scrapply, we, we have this failed when contains option that is that you can set either on a kind of the per connection or per command, um, wherever you want to set it. Uh, and we have some same defaults set for those kind of core platforms. So things like that percent invalid command or ambiguous command or what, you know, whatever those are. Um, and then for every response that we get, we we basically parse and say, hey, did this string show up anywhere in this output, uh, indicating, of course, that that command failed. And then we would mark the the task either as failed or uh, not failed. <laughs> and then there's also a lovingly stolen from requests, a raise for status uh, method of that response object. So you can run your command and then you can just, you don't even have to look at the result. You can just say, uh, response dot raise for status, and it will raise a Scrapply exception if that any of the if the response was failed, or if you were doing this on a multi-responsive, any of the uh, elements of that multi-response were failed. I'm pretty sure with that you can build this as artificial intelligence in some way. Just drop it in there <laughs> because you you have to the script that's got to interpret based on 
training data, sort of, <laughs> whether or not the, <laughs> the, the, the request uh, succeeded or failed. Okay, I'm totally, totally making that up. All right. Uh, you know, another we, issue. You had to pop- get the AI ML quota in, right? <laughs> <laughs> you you got to market it, man. It's mandatory. Scrappy AI. Yeah. You got to, that's that, that would be so much more interesting. You'd have venture capital people coming after you. So that's the way that works these days. <laughs> Quitting my job. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> secrets, Carl. Um, managing secrets is another question that's been bothering the heck out of me personally in that I deal with a, a number of APIs and I'm still, because most of what I've been doing is small scale enough that it's manageable. I've been just passing secrets through with environment variables, but I'm at that point where it's like, yeah, this ain't working. Um, do you have happen to have a recommended strategy for managing secrets? Yeah, that's a hard one. Um, environment variables, obviously good at small scale or, or they're, they're nice and easy. Um, I've had some uh, success with using Ansible Vault not with Ansible, well, with Ansible also, but um, because Ansible is just all Python, you could just import that and use that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is a really big issue. I don't know, Dimitri's probably got some smarter words to say <laughs> than I do on this one. I mean, it depends if it's for SSH or if we are talking general, right? For SSH, you can always use SSH keys instead of, instead of mm. username and passwords. But if you're asking about the general, then for... A single machine, I would still use either environmental variables or config files with some of the secrets stored there. And if I need a distributed system, then I would use something like HashiCorp Vault, I guess. Yeah, HashiCorp Vault is where I keep coming back to. It's just more sitting down and figuring it out because as I've, I, I've gotten as far as not, not actually installing it. That'd be hard, oh my word. But, uh, <laughs> but reading documentation anyway to try to get a sense of how it's supposed to work. And it's like, okay, I gotta have to spend time with this. I'm not just gonna, you know, bust this thing out in an afternoon. I'm gonna have to actually work at it. But but it does seem That's to be it. the answer is HashiCorp Vault, and certainly it's well supported in Python. I just gotta get it done. <laughs> well, uh, another question here, guys, as we're starting to wrap this up, community. Uh, Carl, you had said, yeah, you know, community contributions is not a thing we want to get into, but there's still a scrappy community of some kind, right, where people can can chat with one another and. Uh, and talk, get support, these kind of things. Yeah, so there's a there's a Scrapply channel um, on Network to Code Slack. Um, obviously, if there's a bug or anything like that, you always can open an issue. Um, I'm easy to find on Twitter. Uh, so obviously, Scrapply's really still pretty new. And you know, I guess I think Dimitri and I looked back and, and figured out like the first release was February something. Uh, so still still uh, kind of plodding along and getting some traction, but we're kind of slowly growing and people are definitely uh, kind of starting to pick it up. So hopefully we'll, we'll kind of keep that trend. And um, yeah, there's Scrapply, uh, there's a Scrapply GitHub group thing for all of kind of the ancillary Scrapply uh, projects like the transport plugins at Scrapply.conf. At one point I need to get Scrapply moved into that group from, from my GitHub user, but either way you should be able to easily kind of find um, not too many projects named Scrapply or containing the name Scrapply. So we're easy to find. Now, are you guys both uh, developers? I mean, Carl, I know you you are the developer. Dimitri, are you contributing code to Scrapply as well? No, no. I'm mostly uh, use, using it and uh, consulting or brainstorming with Carl on some of the API experience. Telling Carl what he's got yeah, wrong. He's, got it. Yeah, he's, he's being modest. He's been a big, big help on a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, kind of these architectural talks, like a lot of the response object stuff we, we talked a lot about. And I think uh, Scrapply is much better off for, for Dimitri's insights on those. So appreciate that a lot. What's on the roadmap for Scrapply, Carl? Ooh, NetConf is and kind of was the big one. Um, that's, uh, I guess I'll say in a kind of a 1.0e state, we don't have full RFC support. Uh, but cover all of the things that I care about for now. So for now, that's good. Um, and we can probably keep uh, adding stuff there. Um, the community driver plugin something, whatever that is, I've, I've kind of kicked around a few different things of how best to do that. So I'm still kind of workshopping that. Um, and then, you know, there's there's a never-ending list. I've got like a, a personal Trello board and it's it's kind of embarrassingly long list of to-do items. A um, lot, lot of stuff. I think in general, Scrapply is stable, mature, and all of this stuff that I really want to do is kind of internal. Um, so that's, that's the, the good news is that the public facing API, the, you know, the stuff that you as a user would use, it should really not be changing a whole lot at this point, uh, at least not in the short term. 
so yeah, just kind of constant improvements and the, the plugin thing and kind of keep chipping away on the net comp stuff, I guess. Okay. Okay. Thank you to both of you for having a, a chat today with us about Scraply. Where does everybody go to get this? It sounds like, you know, it's a Google search away, but uh, give us some links anyway. Yeah. So uh, github.com slash Scraply is where kind of all of the non-core Scraply projects live right now. Um, Scraply core lives under my um, GitHub user. So github.com slash Carl Montanari slash Scraply. Um, you can find it on PyPI if you if you care. You can pip search, whatever. Um, network to code Slack. Um, obviously, there's a Scraply channel there like we discussed. So you can come hang out. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm Carl R. Montanari. You can find me. DMs are probably open. I think they're open. If not, <laughs> let me know and we can kind of talk through whatever if you got any issues. Very cool. All right. All right. Thanks to you for listening. And uh, you can find this, many more of our fine, free technical podcasts for IT engineers, along with our community blog. That's all at packetpushers.net. You can join the community discussion at uh, packetpushers.net slash Slack. That's a free Slack channel for you. There's over a thousand different network engineers and uh, folks from the industry that are there exchanging information and chatting uh, pretty much constantly. You can enjoy the best of the Internet Plus feature articles weekly at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. That's a free newsletter. We don't sell your email address or name to anybody or anything. It's just a newsletter for you, the best of the Internet that we have found and we'd like to share. And you can follow our RSS bot with occasional meat bot interruptions on Twitter at Packet Pushers. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough. <laughs>